I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to Text Message, the UK-focused technology podcast with me, Nate Langson. And me, Ian Morris. He almost forgot there, ladies and gentlemen, almost forgot. I always almost forget. Yes, it comes with age, Chief. But later on, we're going to get confused by reading out an email uh, about which Ian disagrees, but I agree. It's going to be a lot of fun, everybody, a lot of fun. We'll get to that in a bit. But first, we have to talk about disaster, which has befallen Britain like Godzilla reigning through the streets of our digital lives. The UK government has bid to massively increase surveillance on the online activity of British people, of course, and it's about to become law as long as the Queen says it's okay. Well, she's not going to say no, is she? It's a bit of a formality, isn't it? She's a pushover, that one. Royal assent, it is. Uh, This is the Investigatory Powers Bill, of course, which was passed in the House of Lords this week after a lot of back and forth over the last few years about exactly what it should look like. Now, Theresa May, our dear unelected leader, uh, who fought pretty tirelessly for a measure like this when she was Home Secretary, um, and she'll take some time away from, of course, pulling Britain out of the EU to grant increased surveillance powers to Britain's police and other public bodies, which includes, crucially, forcing ISPs to keep a log of all of our online activity. Now, as we note, as we noted above or earlier, whichever way you want to look at, at that, uh, it needs royal assent, which doesn't really mean anything, as Ian rightly pointed out. Uh, in terms of interruptions to the law being brought into power, it basically just means the Queen has to look through it and say, yep, cool, that's fine with me, not a problem. And then a few weeks later, uh, it, it becomes into power. Now, there's a useful summary of what the law involves on TechCrunch, which explained that the legislation creates this legal framework to authorise state actors, and I love that term, state actors, because (laughs) it makes me think of Denzel Washington. Well, it certainly takes the sting out of what's coming next, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah. To hack into devices, networks and (laughs) services. It's literally the next word, isn't it? Including in bulk in bulk, bulk collection, Uh, maintain large databases of personal information on UK citizens, including individuals suspected of no crime, that's like Ian and I, um, and force companies to decrypt data on request, which effectively could place a limit on the use of end-to-end encryption. But there's a huge caveat to that, which we can discuss in a little bit, of course. Um, It also requires communications service providers to maintain an ongoing log in real time um, of the digital services and activity that uh, users use and connect to for 12 months. Now, the government obviously says the law helps public bodies fight terrorism and investigate crime. There's also something called a double lock, which is a judicial and senior ministerial sign-off has to take place before warrants for this data the old to double lock to to be to be granted. So, if somebody wants to access this data, they can't simply go to Google or an internal. Uh, NSA type Google system and say, you know, Ian Morris slash Nate Langson last 12 months and have them look at all the stories that we researched for um, 
our podcasts they they can ask for that but they have to go through two separate stages of approval mm. at, at the moment in order to get it well um, yeah i haven't quite finished going through all my caveats go so on. let's just Let's push through. Um, there will also be the investigatory powers commissioner uh, to audit the compliance of agencies that um, are, are collecting this this data and handling this data to make sure that any of these authorizations are are done against you know checks for not compromising privacy or civil liberties or what have you. Um, and of course, critics see the whole thing as a legalization of mass surveillance. Now, that's my summary for now. The, the huge amounts we haven't covered in in that, and there's you know there'll be people on either side of the fence who who will have opinions at this point. So let's look over our podcast fence. Ian, takeaway points, please. Uh, well, the. Uh, I remember when this was going through the first couple of times and the the double lock is essentially nonsense because it's basically granted to um on a on an ongoing basis by one judge or something so I wouldn't allow yourself to feel secure um in that the police can't abuse it because I believe that they absolutely can and almost certainly it will and we won't find out about it because it's you know there there won't be another Ed- Edward Snowden anytime soon would be my guess Edward Snowden uh, by comparison says that this is a more draconian uh, rule than uh, even you'd find in Russia so um I mean, that says a lot, doesn't it, really? Like, you know, I mean, he, he lives in Russia, but he also understands this kind of stuff. And I, uh, my understanding of Edward Snowden is that he doesn't use technology very much. I mean, you know, he understands that people can see absolutely everything he does, and particularly in his position. Um, but ultimately, this is going to place a financial burden on the ISPs. They're going to have to keep the data. Um, it's open to abuse. We've just seen... Three has been hacked, well, not hacked, has been breached from the inside with a staff user ID and password. Uh, we may talk about that later. Um, so uh, it's entirely possible that someone will be able to access anyone's uh, internet history. So if I work at Virgin, um, w- will that will that data be kept away from employees? It might be kept away from some of them, but ultimately there will always be people who have access to it who might, I don't know, get across about their pay one day and just decide to download the database. Um, it, it's, it's just, it's, from a security point of view, it won't help, I don't believe. Um, I think that, well, there was someone tweeted about this and it was a really interesting point, is that criminals are usually caught because they make mistakes. Um, you know, uh, paedophile rings are broken because someone does something that means that the police can track them. It doesn't usually come from this kind of mass surveillance. I mean, you know, you can search for keywords and, you know, and that probably might help in some circumstances. But there are already more than enough tools out there to get around these measures. You know, if I if I jump on a VPN, well, then the, the ISP is no longer able to track what I'm uh, what I'm browsing. It's impossible. Um, if I encrypt everything again, you know, it, it's uh, it, it's for the most part impenetrable at the moment. I'm sure, you know, quantum computers will help break that within the next 10 years. But but it doesn't really matter. The point the point of it is, is that the government is going to be surveilling the people who um, the, the general public and the general public are not the committers of the crimes that the government is looking for. The, the people who commit crimes, particularly in terrorism, are already well aware of everything like this. They are already using, you know, uh, encrypted mobile phone uh, messaging. They're, you know, encrypting their web traffic, whatever. You know, they're, they're, there is 
no criminal organisation in the world isn't by this point aware of what governments are able to do. Um, so this is entirely aimed at sort of collecting data that probably won't be useful. And there is reasonable evidence to suggest that the more data you collect, the less useful it is. So apart from the fact that I find it objectionable that we're being spied on in a mass manner like this, is aside, I don't think it's a useful way of collecting data. And I think it's... I cannot believe that the UK is now, you know, in the bulk data collection business. Well, I have a few points that I I, I want to raise about this that, that play into some of your comments just then. I mean, the first is about encryption, because, yes, the idea of using a VPN, which I use regularly... Um, for, for a variety of legitimate reasons, you know, the most common being using a public Wi-Fi network. Yep. I don't want anyone also on that network to be able to see what I'm browsing or to, to get access to any passwords if apps are passing them unencrypted, for example. You know, I use that a lot in when I'm in coffee shops or if I'm on the London Underground Wi-Fi, for example, or on anything like that. It's just good to use. And sometimes there are services that you can use, whether it's a you know in corporate use, in an office space or elsewhere, that block certain ports, um, internet ports that some apps or services need to use. The most common one, in my instance, is the Elder Scrolls Online, uh, which uh, uses a, a port that gets blocked by a lot of networks. So a VPN can help push through that. And so using a VPN will stop an ISP from being able to see your data. Yes. However, there is discussion that encryption will have to have a back door in it if you're in the UK. So you could theoretically see new startups or new companies having to bake in the ability for UK users to be hacked in order to be allowed to operate. Or if they don't, they could be seen, you know, against the law. Again, to quote Edward Snowden, you know, as soon as you put a backdoor in something, it will be immediately exploited by people who shouldn't have access to it. So they will, the, by doing that, the government will be facilitating criminals, in fact, because they'll be making it easier for, uh, for nefarious third parties to spy on other people. Yeah. Now, another point is one that I think is more concerning uh, or should be more concerning to people who say, well, I've got nothing to hide. What does it matter? Now, there is nothing illegal, for example, about going on gambling websites or looking at pornography or anything that might fall under the category of an adult use. Um, And the problem is, is that if somebody believes, uh, because they've read the news, let's say, that they are having all of their web activity tracked, and maybe they're not savvy enough to know what a VPN is or how to use one or or have the finances to, to purchase um, a VPN, are they going to stop going on pornography websites or gambling websites because they, they're just scared of that being logged against their name? Because that is a completely un... Um, I just think that is wrong. Democratic. It's just... It's fear, and it's it's fear. Yeah, and it's also wrong if you're a 16-year-old girl or boy who, uh, you know, has 
who doesn't feel that they fit into the mainstream of sexuality um you know uh, people who are searching for answers but who don't want you know anyone to know because obviously these are in, you know it's extremely difficult being a teenager and you know obviously a lot of teenagers use porn because you know they're developing in that manner but also there are people who 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 the, for whom the world doesn't seem to have been built for them and they're trying to work themselves out and that just makes that whole thing so much harder um you know what what if my you know what if the government's watching me what if uh you know my isp knows what i'm doing what if someone gets access to this data and uses it to blackmail me you know there are so many problems with mass logging of data that it's just it, it just doesn't even bear thinking about and i don't think it will be very long before we start to see the fallout from that the other side to that of course is that this is being logged in in real time but is it going to be flagged in real time you know there was the example i remember reading in a in a report a few days ago um about the the murder of joe cox on trial who had browsed a, a, a number of uh, of websites that that might have related to um, uh, what he was planning on doing? I think he looked at spinal columns and um, Nazi uh, supremacist websites, that sort of thing. And you know, after the fact, you you know, a reasonable person could say, okay, well, put together these this collection of of browsing histories might suggest something was odd now i'm not defending a murderer obviously you browse lots of things in your daily life that separately have no concern associated with them but if someone was to pick them out it might make you look like a psychopath well this is exactly but the fact is if they were flagged in advance you know is that is that the next step that's not the step now that's not what's going to become law but this has to all be implemented and will be under review and will be open to development and advancement and could it be argued if we let this get through oh we don't really have a choice it's going through then is the next step proactive flagging of people who you know who have a number of red flags you know if you're searching for you know um ultra right wing or neo you know neo nazi sort of stuff or a history of ruthless dictators how guns work and the anarchists cookbook or something will that over the course of a 30 day period put a little flag against your name that allows somebody to check in and say huh who is this guy yeah i mean What's it's going it's, on here? it would it would theoretically allow the opening of um of, of sort of an in, uh, investigation, if you will, into somebody without them actually having really done anything wrong. I mean, information is not a crime, um, and and, and I, 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 so I I think a lot of people sort of view it from the perspective that well, you know, we we might be able to catch people before they commit crimes, and you know, perhaps yeah, but at the same time, and I, it, there's no really easy way to break this to people, but being free means you have to take the risk that sometimes people will commit horrible acts because that's what freedom means it isn't you know it isn't just about being you know some people most people are good and some people are bad you know it you've got to decide if you want to live in a free society or not uh, and the, the uh you know and you'll never stop people from doing horrible things and ultimately if uh, if you want to do horrible things you can do it without ever telling anyone and you can go and buy a very big sword somewhere and go and kill people um and there's no information in the world that we'll ever be able to prevent that from happening. 
Well, we'll keep our eye on this, obviously, and let us know what you think to this uh, development podcast at natelangson.com or send us a message from techpodcast.uk or textmessage.co.uk, a number of options there. We're going to be checking back on this, obviously, over the forthcoming weeks, and obviously when this comes into power, we'll undoubtedly return to it again. But in the meantime, let us know any initial thoughts or concerns you have so we can discuss them on next week's or future episodes of the show. Podcast at natelangson.com. Well, staying on the topic of governmental organizations being able to handle data en masse, this week a test email sent by accident to 800,000 or over 800,000 employees at the National Health Service here in the UK has caused apparent chaos um, after being sent, it seems, to an incorrectly configured email distribution list. Now, there's a great story that summarised some of this stuff on the register that said uh, that of the 1.2 million employees of the NHS, 850,000 have at nhs.net addresses, including doctors and other health workers. And every one of those received this email, <laughs> after which many of them replied reply old to them to say remove me from this list <laughs> which also went to hundreds of thousands of email addresses prompting more reply alls of removal requests and so on and so on very 1995 um, obviously this brought the system to a buckling halt and NHS IT staff said that eventually they removed the ability to send uh, to all users while they tried to fix the problem um, now this obviously wouldn't be so bad if this wasn't the system that, that doctors use, the alternative I suppose is using private email server but you know that's not been shown to be the best of ideas in recent months uh, thanks to certain presidential candidates um now obviously this is this is sort of a fun story because nothing particularly awful happened as a result of this um but i did think it was very very funny because it's such an incredibly old problem it's incredibly outdated and the fact that it happened this week while we were planning talking about governments handling mass amounts of data uh, yeah. i just thought was an interesting thing to point out it is oh and um as a little anecdote i have nothing more to say on this but uh just but do you, i don't know if you ever remember on windows networks there used to be a command called netsend um and netsend would pop up a little dialog box on the screen um with the message in it and so you could do and and you could on a domain type netsend all and type a message and it would pop up on um on all the screens and when I did IT for a living uh, it was it would happen from time to time that someone would write some sort of script that they were trying to get right and they would net send by accident and uh, we used to get that used to flood the switchboards with people thinking they had a virus so you have to be very careful when you're in charge of such things and this happens this happens a lot I mean I think the most common that we see in our in our fields are uh, people in public relations companies sending emails to a specific journalist but accidentally publicly copying all the journalists that they have on that potential mailing list uh, which then sort of has this flood of replies of journalists kind of being sarcastic uh, to each other 
uh, and asking for exclusives and uh, and what have you. It's always very, very funny. And I always feel very sorry for the people that send that because it's such a horrible mistake because you can't take it back. All you can do is sit back and bear witness to the chaos you've caused. <laughs> um, I remember once, in fact, you, were, uh, you and I were both working at CNET at the time when one of the senior executives at a particular company that we worked at accidentally sent his expense report around to the entire business. <laughs> I don't remember that. That's hilarious. I think it was a it was about ten years ago, but it was it was very funny. Anyway, oh, no, I do remember. <laughs> do you remember it. now? Yeah. Oh, that was funny because there was, was a lot funny. of stuff in there, wasn't there? That was like, what you can claim for that? Yeah, I I got telling off once actually at that same company after our uh, uh, shared boss uh, at the time had uh, I'd complained that somebody had eaten my crunchy. Uh, which I'd left in in one of the public fridges, and I was really pissed off about this because I really love crunchies. And uh, he said to me, "Oh, you should send a a UK all, which was the <laughs> name for uh, you know the collective mail address that anyone can use." So I did. So I sent a UK all with a, with a with saying, um, "Has anybody eaten my crunchy?" Uh, it was last seen in the fridge, and I included a giant picture. I said, "Looks like, looks like this. Only, only eaten. probably now eaten." Um, and I got, I got told off for sending that. And I, st- to this day, I still defend that technically my boss suggested I do it. I was just following orders. I could have expensed it, of course, and then just sent the expense report around and asked somebody yeah. else to, to approve it. Well, let's get to an email that did come through, um, probably not from an NHS.net email address. Wanted to discuss this. You can have your comments discussed, of course, by sending them to podcast at natelangson.com. This is from James, and I like this email because Ian and I have different opinions on this email. James writes, Just thought I'd comment on the conversation from last podcast about downloading games versus buying physical copies. I'm a PlayStation gamer and I used to think paying for a download as opposed to a physical disc meant you were being a bit shortchanged. However, I've come to realize that digital is by far my preferred method and I can kind of see an argument for why a download could justifiably be more expensive. When you buy a physical copy, the transaction is completed, you get your game on a disc, that's it. Whereas purchasing a digital copy of a game, on PlayStation Store at least, you're allowed to download that software as many times as you want in future. That really means that the provider is committed to allowing you to access those files on their server whenever you want them. Whereas a, di- a physical copy, there's always a chance, and, I ha- as, uh, and as I have three kids, a certain inevitability, that discs can get lost or damaged. A physical copy is, as far as I know, forever. Don't get me wrong, James adds, I totally agree, and paying 50 to 60 pounds to download a game is ludicrous, and I'm sure lowering the price of pre-orders would result in better overall sales figures, but given the choice between the two formats, I would actually be willing to pay a few quid more for a digital copy, just because of the fact I'm future-proofing my copy of the game. Now, since I broadly agree with James, I'm going to let Ian take the first response. Let me introduce you, James, to the world of the EULA, the End User Licence Agreement. Um, the problem the problem with digital is that, and this actually isn't just a problem with digital because it does sort of apply to discs as well, um, but essentially the End User Licence Agreement means that you aren't actually really the owner of the thing that you've bought. You're just leasing it for a, a you know, usually an indefinite period of time, but contractually a limited amount of time. And... The problem here is, of course, that 
to activate a game in this way, you need to be able to go on the internet. And there is absolutely no reason that, a, you know, say, so let's, for example, say uh, Sony, PlayStation. The PlayStation Store um, is available at the moment and it works fine on, say, the PlayStation 3 and 4. But what if Sony later on decides that they don't want to provide that service anymore on the PS3 and says, you've got to download all your games, that's it. Once they're on your hard drive, they're yours to keep, uh, but you can't download them again. Uh, you know, but if there's some compatibility reason they need to do that, whatever, then that's it, isn't it? You're fine right up until the point that that PS3 breaks and you need to get another one. But then at that point, you've lost all your game library. And it, it, if you only have to look at the fact that people buy, you know, the SNES on eBay now, um, because there's a, there's a library of games available on a physical medium that means that you can plug it into a TV, you can put your game in the top and you can play it. Um, and that just won't exist you know, if we go all digital. Now, I agree. I love digital. Um, I'm sure there are solutions to this problem technically. Uh, they're a bit easier when you've got a PC, I would guess, because you could make an archive copy of something. In fact, Steam uh, specifically allows you to do that. But of course, again, it's still licensed. You still, to use that game, you have to be able to access a licensed server. And those services can be withdrawn. So there you go. Uh, you know, your PS2 CDs and, you know, and your PS3 or DVDs or whatever they were in the PS2 it will work forever. The rest of I, it won't. I think a large amount of that I, I definitely agree with. And I think in terms of the, the whole SNES argument, uh, you reminded me that over the last week or so, um, Kate, my fiance, had been playing a wide range of PlayStation 1 games, including uh, Ape Escape, which I saw her playing yesterday, the original Tony Hawk skateboarding game series, um, Tekken 2, um, Buster Groove she was playing, you know, a bunch of these old, old games. And you're right, had they have been purchased at the time, digitally, if, if technology had advanced by that point, would they still be available to play? Is anyone really going to keep Ape Escape on a server for people to play? And the answer is possibly no. And it reminded me as well that I was having a conversation with um, with Andy, uh, my my brother, who, who works at CNET, and he was talking about um, the app stores of the world being particularly brutal about removing games from their store shelves, one of which was the Tony Hawk's port of the skateboarding game onto ios which he bought some years ago and is now technically visible in his account but he can't play it and activision or ea or whoever published the game pulled it from the servers so he sort of got this game this product he paid for but even just a few years later on a on the same brand of device originally purchased on he can't play it so i think you're right Mm. that kind of permanency of, oh, um, of physical is is definitely is definitely valuable we've seen it with music as well like do you remember when microsoft shut down one or one or other of its pay music services yeah it msn was, music yeah but it wasn't alone in that i mean a lot of those services shut down and said you've got to download all your music or you know here's how you can convert it to be drm free because they wanted to take the drm servers offline because it's expensive to continue those exactly and that and that will happen again in the future but it happens now because we see this with Spotify and Apple Music in particular. It's not very common, but you can see songs that you've got in your library grayed out because they've temporarily been pulled from the service. You know, sometimes it's because they want to promote new stuff versus old stuff. Sometimes it's because labels go into administration or there's some dispute. But I've got at least two or three in my library at the moment that I've just gone and bought the CD for 
to replace because I'm sick of them popping on and off the service. You see this in Netflix even more regularly where there's lists every month of what's coming and going to the service. And I think that's just really bad because if you like a program, you're subscribing to something to access that program. Yes, it's rental, basically. And that's the problem with a lot of these things. But that's still the reason you're paying them money and for it to vanish is really bad. Mm. So yes, as long I think as long as the premise that everything will remain online for as long as you want it, then I think James's argument is is really good and it's certainly the reason why I prefer all of my stuff digital even if it is at a little higher cost because I just I don't want stuff. I want to be free of stuff and I want to access the games wherever I am. Yeah. And Steam's very good, uh, and that's that's worth pointing out that you know not everyone is out to screw you in this game. Um, you know the the first game I bought on Steam is probably still available for me to play now. Yes, indeed. Well, thank you, James, for prompting that discussion. If you would like to prompt a discussion, you can send such prompts to podcast at natelangson.com or go to textmessage.co.uk and send us a message in the form therein. Good news, mobile service fans, because you're getting another option for subscribing to cheap data plans. Plusnet, the Sheffield-based company that is actually owned by BT but looks very independent, is offering a new mobile service. And I couldn't skip this because it's a really compelling deal. Uh, Four gig of data, unlimited calls and texts, £10 a month for SIM only, and if you're already a Plusnet broadband subscriber, which my mum is, then you get double data. And so eight, wow. gig of, 8 gig of data, unlimited calls and texts, 4G, SIM only, £10. And they've got deals that go down to a fiver a month. And it's on the back of EE's network. And, and it is 4G? It's 4G from the gate. Right, yeah. you know what? In the time it took you to start this segment to now, I've decided that I'm absolutely going to sign up for it. It's brilliant for, you know, the iPad, isn't it? Yeah. And stuff like that. Like, where you need just a little bit of data. I mean, And actually, 4 gig is uh, four times more than you get on EE. So I get, I get 1 gig on EE for £10 a month. Yeah. And now I would get 4 gig and I would still be on the EE network. They're going to be, yeah, UK customer service. These are 30-day contracts as well. Um, they offer all the regular SIM prices. You know, I think I think there's an introductory price. So I'm, I'm looking through the pre-order. So it goes up to 15. Just typing in my <laughs> registration details now, mate. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, that, you know, some of these these are introductory prices. But even still, £15 a month, if you're a Plusnet Broadband subscriber, 8 gig, unlimited text, unlimited data, 4G, all that kind of stuff. Like, that is, that is still very compelling. They've got some prices that go down to £5 a month, 500 meg, 250 minutes, 500 text for a fiver 30-day contract and 4g still i mean that is very compelling that is it's not it it's less currently than than bt but you get a lot more data for that price even if it was 15 pounds um bt mobiles 15 pound um network uh, a tariff includes well it was two gig it now says it's four gig but you get 500 minutes instead of unlimited minutes so there's a few nuances and obviously on some of the uh, higher price plans uh, from people like BT or EE, you get things like unlimited Wi-Fi and roaming and uh, tethering and all that sort of stuff, which you probably don't at the moment get on Plusnet. But if all you're after is cheap data on a solid network for very little money, it's very compelling. 
Yeah, it is. Um, although I will just uh, say one little thing about it, and I've just signed up then um, for the pre-registration. That is, they reserve the right to email you um, about other offers and stuff. There's no opt-out for that, so just be aware that you're going to get junk. Yeah, just just reply all and say, please remove me from this this list. They've got seven hundred and fifty thousand customers, so it's almost the same as NHS. Yeah, but I like this because I'm from the north. I I was actually born in Sheffield, and that's where Plusnet is based. Well, do you uh, want a little bit of trivia? Well, back in the day, Plusnet used to have a really good uh, ADSL network, and uh, it, it attracted a lot of very heavy downloaders. So they implemented what was known as the bad boy pipe where you'd get shuffled off onto a really, really snow connection if you were in the top sort of 4% of users or something like that. So they, they lost a lot of credibility back then. And it was a really good ISP, but then B came along and really sort of floored them. But Oh, B. Yes, I remember B, Internet. You and I lived together, I think, when you were telling me about B. And I that was like, as soon as I move house, I'm signing up to B. Yeah, you. I don't think we could, because we were very limited when we lived in Ellsfield together, because we could only get one meg broadband, even if it was like in London. Um, and uh, yeah, so when I moved out, I moved to Teddington and I was w- about one meter from the phone exchange. So I got B and 24 megabits per second. And, you know, I did similar. I moved to Southwark and I was I, I could see the exchange <laughs> from my front door uh, and I got 24 megabits per second down. Um, you, you and I have lived parallel lives. We have. I'm mostly focused around broadband because we're we're saddos and complaining <laughs> and complaining. Um, let's talk about a few more complaints. Three Mobile had a data breach this week. Three people have been arrested. I've actually seen it being more than three, so we're not going to go over the specifics there. But arrests have been made. But it's funny uh, that there were three people. Yes. Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean it's not that funny, is it? it? Oh, yeah. I never even thought of that. That's quite funny. Thank you, mate. That tickled me deep down in areas few people get to tickle. Um, <laughs> Now, the company had said details, including names and addresses, had been accessed by using a login to its database of customers eligible for a phone upgrade. And uh, the the company has also said it was investigating how many accounts had been accessed, but the database did not contain payment, card or bank details, unlike other hacks we've seen in recent months. I got in touch with three by the medium of Complainovision, or Twitter as it's sometimes known. Mm. Uh, and I said, when am I going to find out if my details were leaked uh, and you know, whether people are going to be taking out loans in my name? And they said, uh, you're not our priority right now. We're dealing with the police, essentially. So that was nice. Well, there was a message from the CEO, David Dyson, posted to Three's website to apologise for this, uh, for any inconvenience this has caused. Uh, Dyson writes, I can now confirm that the people carrying out this activity were also able to obtain some customer information in total, information from 133,827 customer accounts were obtained, but no bank details, passwords, PIN numbers, payment information or credit or debit card information are stored on the upgrade system in question. And on the 17th of November, so the day before that they posted this message, we were able to confirm that eight customers had been unlawfully upgraded to a new device by fraudsters who intended to intercept and sell on those devices. It is, it is unforgivable. I mean, I, I sort of I have more sympathy for three because it was obviously a it was a customer, uh, you know, it was a, a staff member's details that we used. But even so, um, you should need to be either connected to a VPN or physically present in a building to use any such database. And perhaps that's not the case here. So, you know, yeah, this is all manageable security. None of it's rocket science. Mm-hmm. 
Well, before we move on, let's check in overseas for a global look at what's been happening in the tech world this week. Tom Merritt of Daily Tech News Show, What Have People Missed? Over on your side of the pond. Hey, thanks, Nate. This week on Daily Tech News Show, we looked over why Spotify still dominates global market share, discussed how you can avoid fake news online, possibly determined what the perfect wireless mouse is, cheered on SpaceX and OneWeb in the race for space-based internet, and Darren Kitchen told us how to guard your accounts against data breaches. All that and a bit more that's just as good at DailyTechNewsShow.com. Back to you. Thank you, Tom. Well, we're going to call it a day there, but thanks to everyone who's been writing in. We're getting a lot more email from you. Thank you for the reviews still coming in to iTunes. We're you know, over 150 now. We're still on five stars. Um, that is just wonderful to see, and thank you to everyone who's done that. If you haven't yet, it's the only form of payment that we, that we ever want is your reviews. And we're not even asking for five-star reviews. Just word of mouth and letting people know your honest thoughts is all we want because um, it helps keep the show heard and seen in the spotlight and that keeps us motivated to do it each week for you so thanks for that and unless there's anything else here and i think uh, i think we'll see everybody next week certainly will good job Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.